going to go ahead and get started here. We'll open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get things uh, rolling with the class this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, beautiful sunny day out, Lord, and we just uh, pray that you would uh, help us as we come now into this place and join together as, as uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to study your word. We just ask your blessing upon this class and the other classes that are meeting right now, and we also ask your blessing upon the service to follow, that, uh, that Lord, uh, everything we do here today would be pleasing to you and you would be glorified, and, and uh, Father, we just uh, we want to give you the praise for everything that's done. We just uh, ask your guidance now, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we uh, are going to start talking about uh, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Uh, the Gog and Magog passages. Now, um, if, you, if you've never really done any study on end times prophecy, you may not even know what I'm talking about. You might be like, what in the world is Gog and Magog? Um, if you have ever done any study on Bible prophecy, you've heard of this many times. Um, the reason we are kind of taking this little break from Revelation and going back to Ezekiel is because this is basically seen as, as an essential passage to the study of end times prophecy. Uh, it is a, a very important passage. You really can't study end times prophecy without studying this. And Revelation refers to this. Uh, we'll see in chapter 20 it makes a direct reference to it. So it's something that is absolutely important to study uh, in order to get you know, a, a real picture of what's going on in, in Revelation. However, it is enormously difficult. There are just you know, dozens and dozens of different like, translations of what all this means. It's, it's a large passage, uh, two chapters. I believe it totals 52 verses, an uh, awful lot of information. I told you last week it was probably going to take uh, two weeks. I, I've revised that as I was studying it this week. It's probably going to take three. Because um, this week we won't even really touch the passage. This week we are going to talk about the backdrop for the pa passage. We're going to basically do what I do every time I start a, a brand new study. Uh, you guys, most of you have been with me for a while. And at the, at the beginning of a Bible study, I always you know, begin with context. Because context is kind of what puts the... The, the, the fence around interpretation, if you will, kind of keeps it within the rails. Uh, it helps determine how to interpret something. Uh, and, and so, I, I, you know, I think that's the first place. One of the reasons I, I think that sometimes we get ourselves in trouble in, interpreting the Bible is because we don't look at the context. We don't learn what was going on, what was the audience that was being spoken to, you know, what, what was their lives like and the situations that they were living out. And we also have a tendency to remove it from its immediate context in the Bible. We'll just kind of lift it out of there and not really put it in its backdrop. And a lot of times we, we get messed up by doing that. Uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of answer some of the key questions uh, in the Gog and Magog passages so that we when we kind of hit the ground running next week, we can go right into working on chapter 38 and then probably the following week, 39. Um, hopefully, you know, you guys will stay with me. This, is, this will not be too boring for you. Actually, I think you might find it interesting. It's, there's some pretty, pretty wild stuff um, 
here. So it's a difficult passage. Now, one of the questions is why study it now? Um, as you, I'm going to show you here in a minute that there's actually all kinds of, of ideas about where this belongs in relation to the book of Revelation uh, and, and, and the, the final seven years of human history. Some people believe it belongs at the very beginning of that, at the midpoint of that, at the end of that, at the end of the millennial kingdom. There's all kinds of ideas about where th this passage actually relates to, to the book of Revelation. Um, so why study it now? Well, in order to answer that, I want to take a look at one of the, the, the key questions that have to be asked when you study the Gog and Magog uh, passages. And there's really five key questions that, that you know, kind of need to be answered when you study uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And those questions are, one, what battle is this? Does this correlate the battle that is going to be talked about? And it's an invasion and a battle that takes place in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. Uh, that's what the Gog and Magog passage is, is about. It's about a, a battle uh, led by uh, Israel's enemy, Gog of Magog. Okay, so one of the questions is, what battle is this? Does it correspond to another battle somewhere in Scripture, or is it a battle all on its own? Okay, another question is, who is Gog, or what is Gog? What does it mean? Uh, you know, who is this that, that, that is being talked about? Third is, when does it take place? Not just what battle is it, but when does this battle take place? Uh, you know, can we, you know, with any kind of certainty, place it on, you know, the timeline of prophecy? The fourth question is, where does it take place? Where does the battle actually happen? And then the last question is, why does it take place? What is going on there? You know, what is God's purpose in, in, in this battle? And, and as we will see when we get into chapter 38 next week, it, it's very clear that God, um, God wants to do this. God is not making him do anything he, does, he doesn't want. The beginning of the passage, you know, takes care of those two things. God is behind this all, and he is engineering it. Gog wants to do it, and God takes kind of Gog's, you know, desires and his evil, and he uses the phrase, I'm going to put hooks in his jaws, like catching a fish, and I'm going to wind him right in. You know, think what happens when you fish. Fish are always hungry. They're voracious creatures. It's absolutely amazing. I, I've caught a fish before that had like four hooks in its mouth that had been broken off, and it was still eating. They're, they're, it's astonishing. They'll just eat constantly. So you give them what they want, and they're usually going to take it. And if you can hook them and, and, and keep your line from breaking, you can reel them right in. And that's kind of the picture of what you're going to see here when we get into this next week. God gives him what he wants, but that's, you know, he's got a hook in it, and God says, I'm going to set hooks in his jaws, and I'm going to reel him in. So who is this guy, and what is God's purpose? Well, to, the first question I want to try to answer, and this will give you kind of a, the answer to why we're going to study this now, 
is I want to discuss the timing. When uh, does this take place and kind of what battle is this? Uh, and, and, and that will set, I think, the, the timing for why we're doing this right now. Uh, let's take a, a quick look at some of the things we've talked about recently in Revelation and then some of the things that are coming up. Uh, so it'll be a bit of a, a preview for, for some of you and a, and a bit of a review uh, for some of you also. Turn in Revelation to chapter 14, verse 8. And we saw in verse 8 this phrase, the second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her idolatry, or her adulteries, excuse me. We talked about this back then when we studied this, and, and you know, there's many thoughts about who Babylon the great is, and, and we're going to deal with this actually uh, when we get back into Revelation in chapter 17 and 18, deal with the fall of Babylon the Great. So we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about this, but you remember one of the things that we said was that many scholars believe that, that Babylon the Great, Babel, the whore of Babylon, you guys have heard that phrase, the uh, fallen Babylon, all the different phrases that are used, uh, you know, that, that what that is talking about is kind of the, the form of government at the end of the world. At the end of the tribulation, the, the Antichrist government, essentially, you know, is, is what that is talking about. Uh, that's one of the theories on it, and like I said, we'll discuss that more in a few weeks when we uh, kind of take our final look at that. But I will kind of give you a preview. I, I agree with that. I think that is probably the correct uh, interpretation, is that Babylon the Great is essentially um, the new Babylon or the new Rome. Uh, remember we discussed this a little last week that uh, uh, the early Christians saw Rome as kind of like the, the next Babylon. Just like when someone, you know, some kind of bad player out in the world scene kind of crops up. What, you hear the phrase a lot of times, well, that's, that, that, you know, that's like the next Hitler. You guys have all heard that phrase? Well, that's the way Rome, you know, was looked at by early Christians. That they were the next Babylon. They were the continuation of what Babylon had done, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here this morning. So we see that introduced uh, in chapter 14. Then jump over to chapter 16, and you look at verses 12 through 16. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates. Its waters dried up uh, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits to perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them to battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and shamefully uh, exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the, the, the beginning of this kind of campaign of Armageddon, the gathering together of the forces that will be arrayed against Israel uh, at the end of the tribulation period. Now, it's interesting, the Bible then kind of takes a bit of a break from that, uh, and it, it, it finishes out the bold judgments. 
you know, and, and that's what we, we see you know, immediately following this, is the bold judgments are finished out. We did that, of course, here just the other week. And then in chapters 17 and 18, as I said, we will come back to Babylon the Great, the fallen Babylon. You know, so again, just I want you to have this in your mind. Chapter 14, it introduces that idea of Babylon the Great, fallen Babylon. Chapter 16, we have the gathering together of, of the, the, the kings and of the nations against Israel for the battle, what was called the Battle of Armageddon, but probably is more rightly called the Campaign of Armageddon. They, they gather together in this place so they can go to battle, okay? Then you have like this, that's interrupted by the f- finishing of the bold judgment. Then 17 and 18 go right back to Babylon the Great, Verses or chapters uh, 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, then do Armageddon again. So you guys all get the picture. Basically, this is one kind of continual section. Just right in the middle of it, you have kind of the bold judgments, uh, you know, that God is talking about. So that is why we're studying this right now. Because at least two or three of the different ideas of what you know, is going on in uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 fall within this time period. They, you know, they either feel like it should be, you know, the, the battle of Armageddon, that is, you know, th- that, that is what's going on, or it happens after the millennial kingdom or a, a combination of the, of the two. So it seems like the best time to talk about this was right now. I almost discussed Gog and Magog at the very beginning. Um, you know, almost even before we get into Revelation, I thought about it just as kind of like an appendix that we could then refer back to. But I thought, no, if we do that, it won't be fresh in people's minds. Uh, it would be better to do it at the, that kind of the closest point uh, to, to what we're studying in Revelation. So that's why we're going to do it now. Okay, we're going to step away from Revelation here for three weeks, and we're going to talk about this, and then we're going to come back with this in our minds and move into Revelation, and I think, I hope, what we see in chapters 17 through 20 will make a whole lot more sense because of that, okay? So that's the plan. That's, that's kind of the, uh, the outline here for what we're talking about. Uh, as I said, Armageddon and the return of Christ is in chapters 19 and 20. The millennial kingdom is in chapter 20. And then Satan is loosed again to tempt the nations one more time. And Gog and Magog is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. So, let's start talking a little bit about Gog and Magog. There are basically seven views on the time when this invasion takes place. You say seven, yes, seven views. I'm sure there are others, but I'm just talking like mainstream views. Uh, Yeah, as we were just discussing back there a little bit ago, you get on the internet, you can find anything. Um, But as far as mainstream views, there there have been seven views that have been put out there. Let me kind of... uh, read some of those to you here. Uh, this is from the New American Commentaries, uh, commentary on Ezekiel by Lamar Eugene Cooper. Um, let's just kind of see what, uh, 
he says about these seven, seven views. Ezekiel envisioned a future time when Israel will have recovered, regathered in the land, and will be dwelling in security. The armies of Gog would advance like a storm in a cloud covering the land. Gog at that time would come against the mountains of Israel. There are at least seven views of the time when the invasion of Gog will take place. One view regards this passage as entirely symbolic. Okay, and, and you know, one of the commentaries I, I was looking at, that's the view he takes. Now, you have to understand, this is a very famous Old Testament scholar, not a, a liberal by any stretch. But he takes the view that this is symbolic for essentially Satan and all the enemies of God's people. That it's not really talking about a real event that will happen. I don't agree with that view, but that is one of the views that's out there. Okay, that this whole, everything with Gog and Magog is completely symbolic. All right? Uh, one view re, uh, regards this passage as entirely symbolic. Another considers that the battle will occur before the tribulation, either just prior to or at the time of the rapture of the church. Now, that is a, a, a view that's held by quite a number of people. And again, very good, very sound, you know, Bible scholars. Uh, I used to kind of lean toward that view myself years ago. It, uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense. How many of you have ever, you know, read or, or listened to any of the left behind things? That is the view that, that, that they take, that there is an invasion of Israel that takes place before the rapture, okay? So th that is a popular view, okay? We'll talk a, a little bit, of like, just light, lightly critique some of these views in, in a little bit. The third view is that the battle will occur in the middle of the tribulation, and is associated with Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, and Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 and 41. Fourth, the battle will occur at the end of the tribulation, and is equated with the battle of Revelation 19, uh, verses 11 through 21, which is the battle of Armageddon, okay? So that is also a very major view. That, I mean, I don't know that, you know, I've never polled them, but my guess is that's probably the most popular uh, you run into that probably more than anything else. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't know for sh that for certain, but you just run in, seem to run into that view more often amongst conservatives than any of the other views. Um, fifth, the battle will occur during a transitional period, that is, between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennium, to destroy the weapons of, of Babylon and cleanse the land prior to the advent of the millennium. So, you know, as he says there, some people actually think that when, you know, between the time that Christ comes and the time he sets up his millennial kingdom, that there will be a period of time in between there where this battle will take place, all right? So that, that's the, the fifth view. Sixth, the battle will occur at the end of the millennium and should be equated with Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. As I mentioned, Gog and Magog is referred to literally referred to in chapter 20. So many people are like, look, you know, that this is pretty easy. They were referred to there, that's where the battle takes place. Okay? A final view combines the fourth and sixth views and considers that the battle will occur at the end of the tribulation, Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21, and it will be held in pause for 1,000 years, after which it will resume and be concluded 
as the battle of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. I've got to be honest with you, usually I am a, an advocate of, of what philosophers uh, call Occam's razor, what country folk call keep it simple, stupid. Uh, you know, the simpler you can make it, that's probably the better answer. Why complicate it if you don't have to complicate it? I've got to tell you, to me, this is probably the most convincing view. Simply because of the, of the use of language that we have here and the way this is set up, I really like this view. I think uh, it's probably the most likely to be the, you know, the one that's, that's most dead on. That the battle begins at Armageddon and then Christ wins, destroys his enemies, but he doesn't destroy Satan. He locks him up for a thousand years and he sets up a millennial kingdom, and at the end of that, he gives people one last chance to make their choice. You're going to follow me, everything I've shown you, all the amazing stuff of the last thousand years, or are you going to go your own way? And he lets Satan loose to tempt the world one more time, and Satan brings this battle upon him just like Armageddon. The thing it reminds me of is it reminds me of World Wars I and Two. Uh, you know, if you guys have ever read anything or any, ever listened to any lectures or anything of, of, of historians about World Wars I and II, pretty much everyone I've ever listened to basically says that World War II was just a continuation of World War I. You know, that, that the, yes, they're two separate wars, but in reality, they're, they're really kind of one big war. That the, the, the you know, the, the um, circumstances that World War II brought about, and the, the questions it didn't answer, the things it didn't solve, carried over, you know, into World War II. Adolf Hitler was a soldier for the Central Powers in World War I, and was bitter and angry at, the, at their defeat and at the way that he felt they were treated in the, in the Treaty of Versailles which was not just a peace treaty, but it was a punitive treaty. It was meant to punish the central powers for what they had done. And that punishment led to so, so, such, uh, I mean, you, know, you have to remember, boy, I, I, I'm getting off subject here, but, uh, you know, the Great Depression happened in between those wars. And it wasn't just in America. You know, it, it also affected the economies of the world, especially Europe. And Germany coming out of World War I and, and, and the punitive measures of, of Versailles uh, you know, made Germany dirt poor. And, and people like Hitler were angry and bitter and looking for someone that would come up and fight for them. And, and Hitler used all of that in order to gain power and, and, and you know, gain the fanaticism uh, that, that, that started to take place. There was already a hatred of the Jews, but it just made it worse when, you know, the, the, poorer, the poorer people got and the worser situations, people do what you, fallen humans always do. They look for somebody else to blame except themselves. And the Jews were an easy target because most of them already didn't like them. So that, that's what I'm reminded of when I, I read this. It, it's, it's, it's so similar you know, Satan and, and the world that hates God. And we've seen that over and over where God's given them a chance to repent over and over again. And people have no interest in repentance. 
They hate God. They curse him. They blaspheme him. And Satan leads a war through the Antichrist, and God just smacks him down, destroys him. A thousand years later, God releases Satan to do the same thing, and he, he you know, convinces people of the same thing, still sinful, fallen people, and another battle takes place. Quite frankly, I think it's a pretty elegant solution. Um, let me continue on here. It says, none of these suggestions is problem-free. The first set suggestion fails on the premise that a purely symbolic battle would hardly be described in such detail. Like I said, there's 52 verses describing you know, Gog and Magog. That, that, that's overboard if this is just a, you know, some kind of symbolic thing. Um, you know, you'd never put in that, that kind of detail. The second suggestion does not correlate with the scheme of the end times in which Israel already would have begun to enjoy its covenant peace. Uh, you know, that really doesn't take place before the tribulation. In fact, most, you know, pre-millennial, pre-trib people believe that, that, you know, the tribulation starts when Israel signs a peace treaty with the Antichrist. So they wouldn't be necessarily at peace before that, Okay. It also fails in the fact that it doesn't really do anything to deal with chapter uh, Revelation 27 and 8, where Gog and Magog is, is mentioned. In order to hold that position, you really have to say that there are two Gog and Magogs. You know, I mean, there's only really one reference to it in the Old Testament, one in the New. Uh, you know, it, it's stretching it to try to make that, you know, add a third that's never actually mentioned. The third, third suggestion does not fit uh, since there is no battle mentioned in, in the mid-tribulation. It also would be difficult to classify the mid-tribulation as a time of, of security. The fourth uh, suggestion fails to explain the battle of Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, and what its relation would be to the other apocalyptic battles as well as the use of the name Gog. The fifth suggestion is unacceptable because, acceptable because there is no biblical evidence to, to suggest that a battle occurs in the transition period mentioned in Daniel chapter 12. No battle there. So you have to add one to Scripture in order to get a battle there. And that's never a good idea. The sixth suggestion places the battle at the end of the millennium. This seems to have fewer problems than the previous ones. Not all the elements of Ezekiel 38 and 39 fit neatly into Revelation chapter 27 and 8. The information of 52 verses would hardly fit into two verses. But Revelation does have the important feature of exact name identity with Gog and Magog. The seventh, the seventh view has the advantages of both four and six and is so strongly suggested by John's use of, use of Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 4 in Revelation 19, 17, and 18. John actually refers back to Ezekiel uses the same phrases in the battle of Armageddon. And then in chapter 20, at the end of the millennium, you have the actual phrase Gog and Magog used again. So it does seem that the language of the, the, the text suggests that somehow this is, you know, Armageddon and a thousand years later, Gog and Magog are all one. Okay? But like, like he said, none of them are perfect. 
None, none of these ideas fit perfectly. None of them is without any trouble. As I explained to you guys many times during the study of, this, of, of the book of Revelation and of end-time prophecy in general, that is the issue. There's nothing that's ever spelled out completely clearly. That's why you have to have some humility. You have to you know, temper your enthusiasm somewhat on a lot of these things and not be real dogmatic. Not if you're going to be honest. People take a lot of, oh, man, it has to be this. You know? And, and it, it's just not, that's just not right. Uh, it's just not that clear. And so sometimes we have to be much more humble with God's word than we like to be. Yeah. In fact, hold on to that, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Yep. So, um, the, the problem with some of them is that there is no reference to a battle during the time period that, these, that they talk about. Some of them have the strength that there is a battle there. You know, the fourth view, Armageddon, there's a battle. The last, you know, sixth view, there's a battle. Um, we don't really have a, a, anywhere where there's a reference to a battle at the beginning of the tribulation or at the midpoint uh, and of course, the symbolic view, I mean, they would say, well, yeah, there's a battle, but it, it's just symbolism. Um, so, the la- you know, I think that's why he, he's much more kind of behind the last three views that it's, e- well, not the last three, it's e- either four, six, or it's the unification of the two. Yeah. Yeah, but hold, hold on to the, we're going to do a, a brief outline of, of Ezekiel here in a little bit that, that kind of points to what you're talking about. I absolutely agree. Ezekiel 38 and 39 are looking to a future thing. They are not necessarily looking to um, 6th century Babylon. They're looking to a future Babylon. So yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Good point. Um, I'll just go on re- reading his kind of closing statements on this. This battle t- uh, probably takes place at the end of the tribulation, bringing it to a conclusion and ushering in the thousand-year reign of peace. The battle starts again, however, at the end of the thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3 refer to the binding of Satan in the abyss for a thousand years to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Revelation 20, 7 and 8 adds that when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them to battle. This seems clearly to suggest a second stage of the Gog and Magog battle that began in Revelation 19 at the coming of Messiah and, and, uh, and conclusion of the tribulation. The purpose would be uh, the final defeat of Satan before the beginning of the eternal state. So that basically is this author's view. Um, like I said, I like that view. I, I don't know, you know, that I would be completely 100% dogmatic about it just because, as he mentions himself, there are problems with all these views. Um, but that's probably the, the 
closest that we're going to get, you know, at least in my mind. Um, let's, um, let me read something else to you here. This, this is from a, a book by a really eminent uh, Old Testament scholar, Hebrew, scholar of Hebrew and Semitics uh, named Michael Heiser. And he writes this about uh, Gog and Magog, really kind of uh, agreeing to a, a large degree with what uh, Dr. Cooper says. The prophetic description in Ezekiel 38 and 39 of the invasion of Gog of the land of Magog is well known and the subject of much interpretive dispute, both scholarly and fanciful. One of the secure points is that Gog will come from the heights of the north, while many scholars have focused on the literal geographical uh, aspects of this phrasing, few have given serious thought to its mythological associations in Ugaritic and Canaanite religion with Baal, Lord of the Dead. Remember, Israel, one of their great enemies was Baal. The peoples around them believed in Baal. That whole idea of something coming from the north was very big in the peoples around Israel who worshipped Baal. I said, a lot of times if we don't really dig into the context, we don't understand what their backdrop would have been, how they would have understood certain phrases. It has no meaning to us. But his point is it would have been extremely meaningful to them at the time that, this was, that Ezekiel was written. An ancient reader would have looked for an invasion from the north, but would have cast this invasion in a supernatural context. In other words, the language of Ezekiel is not simply about a human invader or human armies. An ancient reader would have also noticed that this invasion would come at a time when the tribes had been united and dwelt in peace and safety within the promised land. In other words, once the, the period of exile had ended. The battle of Gog and Magog would be something expected after the initiation of Yahweh's plan to reclaim the nations and therefore draw his children Jew and Gentile from those nations. The Gog invasion would be a response of supernatural evil against the Messiah and his kingdom. This is precisely how it is portrayed in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Gog would be perceived uh, as either a figure empowered by supernatural evil or an evil quasi-divine figure from the supernatural world bent on the destruction of God's people. For this reason, Gog is regarded by many scholars as a template for the New Testament Antichrist figure. While Magog and the heights of the north aren't precisely defined in the Gog prophecy, the point is not about literal geography per se. Rather, it is the supernatural backdrop for the whole northern foe idea that makes uh, uh, any such geographical reference important. For sure, ancient Jews would expect that the reconstitution kingdom of Yahweh would be shattered by an enemy from the north as it had before but ancient Jews would also have thought in supernatural terms a supernatural enemy in the end times would be expected to come from the seed of Baal's authority the supernatural underworld realm of the dead located in the heights of the north Gog is explicitly described in such terms so essentially he is he is largely backing up what Dr. Cooper says, but he is also adding the fact that the people of the day, when they saw phrases like, you know, invasion from the north, they wouldn't have just expected a human invader. Yes, they would have expected that, 
But they would have also thought supernaturally because they understood their struggle with the peoples around them and, and the false gods around them as a supernatural struggle. And so they would have seen this as something that was supernaturally motivated. Well, what do we read in Revelation? You know, going the whole way back to fallen Babylon. It is a world kingdom, but it's a world kingdom run essentially by Satan, energized by Satan. What is the Antichrist? He is a, a human figure, but he, the Bible specifically says he is energized by Satan. So really, Dr. Heiser, the view he's pointing out for Gog and Magog, fits perfectly with what we see in Revelation. So we spend a lot of time, you know, <laughs> kind of looking for, well, who is this? But the who may not really be the right answer in a lot, in a lot of ways. In fact, let's take a moment um, and look at five views of who Gog is. Let's answer, try to answer our second question. Who is Gog? Or what is Gog? Again, um, I want to read from Dr. Cooper's commentary, uh, you know, some ideas of who uh, this person is. All kinds of ideas through the years of who, who Gog is. Many suggestions have been offered for the identity of Gog. Some of these. One, Gugu, I kid you not, that was his name, Gugu. Yep, unfortunate name. Gugu or Gyges, a, a, a ruthless ruler of Lydia, depending on what ancient language you read his name in. Sometimes he was for, referred to as Gugu, sometimes as Gyges. If I were him, I'd like Gyges better, I think, but hey, you know. He was stuck with Gugu. Second one is Gegu, a ruler of the land of Saki, a, a, an area north of Assyria. Another unfortunate name, Gugu and Gegu. Two actual people, you know, we know from history, all right? Three, an unidentified ruler whose name is from a Sumerian loan word, Gug, which means darkness. So, you know, in that view, we don't know the, who this person is, but we, the, the name is used because it comes from a Sumerian. What a loan word is, is when one language takes a word from another language and uses it in their language. English is famous for loan words. It's one of the reasons English is so, has been so uh, successful worldwide, because we're filled with words from other languages. Gugu was a, the uh, a leader of, uh, of uh, Lydia, uh, yeah, an ancient land. I think they were kind of what would now be uh, Turkey, like Asia Minor, that area. Yeah. Um, so some people believe this is, a, you know, is from the loan word Gug, uh, which basically means darkness. So it's, it's, the name is used symbolically. It's saying Gog is darkness. He is evil. He is kind of a personification of evil. Throw out a little hint. I like that interpretation. I think it's probably the best. You know, we spend so much time looking for the actual person, but you do realize it can't be the actual person. Because Gug's been dead for thousands and thousands of years. 
So he, is, he has to come back to, to, from the dead for the end times, or you use it the same way we talked about Hitler. People say, well, you know, the next Hitler, that guy could be the next Hitler. You know, they, they, you know the, the argument would be the Jews would have said, well, that guy's the next Gug. You know, that, that's, so, you know, all the time we spend looking for who the, the actual person is, it can't be the actual person anyway. You know? Or an official title for a ruler comparable to Pharaoh or king. In other words, Gug is just a, it's another name for like a king. Caesar, Pharaoh, Kaiser, Czar. You know, you guys get the point? He would be called a Gug or a Gog. <laughs> Funny to even say. Five, it's a general term for an enemy of God's people. Okay? So those are the kind of the five major ideas for who or what Gog is. Um, well, let me read a little bit more here of, of this. Uh, I, th I think this will be helpful. One interesting interpretation identifies Gog as a cryptogram for Babel or Babylon. Now think back to what we see happening in Revelation 14 and the whole thing about fallen Babylon. All right? This identification bears some consideration, especially since Babylon was omitted from the nations mentioned in the messages of judgment in Ezekiel 25 through 32. And like I said, we'll do a, a, you know, a brief kind of overlook of Ezekiel here in, in a little bit, but there's a, in chapters 25 through 32, there's a series of, of uh, judgments that Ezekiel is given by God against like nations surrounding Israel. Do you know who's left out? Babylon. Which doesn't seem to make much sense because who's the one that took Israel into captivity? Babylon. Jeremiah's prophecy against Babylon, for example, devoted more attention to its destruction than any other foreign nation condemned in his, in his prophecies against the nations. He was convinced that God would use Babylon to chasten Judah and encourage submission and cooperation. Yet he devoted two lengthy chapters totaling 110 verses to a description of the total massive destruction of Babylon. This prophecy of the fall of Babylon was not fulfilled when it fell to the Medo-Persians in 539 BC. Why did Ezekiel admit any hint of the destruction of Babylon in his messages against the nations? The answer may lie here in chapters 38 and 39. For these chapters may be a cryptic catalog of the details of the fall of Babylon. Using Gog as a symbol of Babylon would fit the apocalyptic nature of these uh, chapters. If such is the case, Babylon itself is being used to represent the nations of the world aligned against God's people in the end times. This goes to what you were saying about it's really looking forward. It's not so much looking to the events of the time. Ezekiel was concerned not about the destruction of 6th century B.C. Babylon, but of the Babylon of the last days, whose destruction would be necessary to facilitate the messianic restoration of Israel that he envisioned in chapters 33 through 37. The establishment of the messianic kingdom is the theme of the entire section on restoration. In order for that restoration to take place, Babylon would have to be overthrown. This means Ezekiel 38 and 39 would be an appropriate interlude, or excuse me, prelude of, uh, to visions of the messianic kingdom. It is no coincidence 
therefore, that this is exactly what follows in chapters 40 through 48 of Ezekiel. So in other words, you have Ezekiel's prophecies about the judgment of Judah coming and the nations around it coming the whole way up to chapters uh, 37. And then in 38 and 39, you have kind of a, an aside. And he talks about Gog and Magog. And then in chapters 40 through 48, he talks about the restoration of Israel at the end of time. Timing fits really perfect, doesn't it? Babylon's control of Israel began in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and forced uh, Jehoiakim to submit as, a, as his vassal. Babylon was overthrown exactly 70 years later in one night at the hands of the Medo-Persians. But this would not be the end of Babylon. And pay very good attention to this. Because we talked about this when we first started talking about fallen Babylon in Revelation 14. Where does this concept of Babylon as like the end time kingdom... Uh, you know, them and Rome kind of together as the reconstituted Roman Empire or the reconstituted Babylon. Where does that idea kind of first come from? He says, but this would not uh, be the end of, the, of, of Babylon. The kingdom that began under Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, okay, going the whole way back to after the flood and, 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 and the, the time of the Tower of Babel, okay, Remember, what was Babel? A show of defiance against God. We're going to do things our own way, God. We don't need you. We'll do our own thing. Notice how he puts this. Uh, Nimrod, uh, you know, Babel, Babylon essentially was a byword for godless government. Uh, this would resurface in the last days under the direction of the wicked prince Gog, and it would be defeated. His defeat would be uh, incontrovertible evidence that Messiah's reign of peace and security for his people had begun. Once adi one additional clue to this cryptographic identity of Gog as Mystery Babylon lies with the role of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon's rise to power. This is pretty cool. His father, Nabopolassar, engineered the overthrow of Assyria to establish Babylon as the dominant world power of that time. He did so by forming an alliance with the Median king, uh, Zyaxeres. With the help of the Medes and the Scythians, thought about you guys, the Medes and the Scythians, he captured Nineveh in 612 BC. The alliance that made this great military feat possible was sealed by the marriage of Nabopolassar's son, Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, this is where Nebuchadnezzar enters the picture. The marriage of his son, uh, son Nebuchadnezzar to Amitus, the daughter of Syaxeres. That's how they formed their legacy and how Nebuchadnezzar ultimately came to power as the leader of Babylon. This gave Nebuchadnezzar a direct link to the very provinces identified as allies of Gog, Meshech, Tubal, Gomer, and Togormah. Those were areas that belonged to, uh, you know, the, the uh, Median kind of empire at the time, and the Babylonians got control of them through the marriage of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and Amitus. Ezekiel was most concerned about the final, final form of the uh, Babylonian empire, Mystery Babylon, which he called Gog. 
Using subtle cryptic clues, he identified Gog as the future Babylon that would appear in the last days to oppose God and his people. The anti-God kingdom uh, Ezekiel saw is similar to the picture in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 of mystery Babylon gathering all nations against God and his people. One should be cautious, however, about making certain identifications of exactly which nation in modern or future history will fill this role. In the 20th century, Germany, Russia, Iran, and Iraq have all been nominated uh, to fill this role, but none of these is certain. In fact, to be honest with you, at least the, the Germany and Russian part are pretty much mocked by Old Testament scholars. They're seen as just horrible scholarship, you know. Um, the nation uh, that both Ezekiel and John saw will be, a, be whatever nation or other group Satan chooses as a means to oppose God at that crucial time. Rabbinic writers... This is important. Rabbinic writers of the time, you know, the time period we're talking about here is, is second century, or I mean, uh, second temple Judaism. This is the, the, the Judaism of Jesus' day. Okay? This is what the, the Judaism that Jesus grew up in, second, te- second temple Judaism. The rabbinic writers identify Gog and Magog as the enemy, as the final enemy who will attack Israel in the Messianic age. So many of the, the, you know, rabbinic writers of the time agreed with that analysis. So look, like I said, we, you know, got to be really careful of being really, really dogmatic about a lot of this stuff because none of this works perfectly. But boy, it fits really well. And there's a lot of elements that you can bring to bear on it that really kind of seem to hold up. So I, I think it's, you know, as, as a working conclusion for our study, I think it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good working, you know, conclusion, uh, to, you know, to go with from, from this point on. Still can't be dogmatic, but it's pretty darn good. Um, let me read one last uh, thing here from Dr. Heiser, a point he makes about this that I, I thought was illustrative. It says, however, it is, uh, it is sufficient to make the point here that it is illegitimate, illegitimate Bible interpretation to posit the notion that Gog and Magog of Revelation 27 through 10 is a different Gog and Magog than in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in order to make one's explanation of end times work. And that's what people do. And he's saying that's illegitimate. You, you, you don't get to do that. Yes, you can. There's no law out there that's going to keep you from doing it, but that that is never good Bible study. That's illegitimate Bible study. To create something, add it to the text in order to make your scheme fit is what he's talking about. He said, you you just don't get to do that. We ought not to add to Scripture for the sake of a theological system. Any system must account for Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, and the fact that the Jerusalem temple and restored Eden follow in Revelation 21 and 22, just as Ezekiel ideal, Ezekiel's idealized temple follows in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. The correspondences and sequencing are no accident. So whatever you come up with, you have to account for that somehow. 
You can't just make stuff up is basically what he's saying. And you'd be astonished how often that happens. So I, I think from a, 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 the, you know, the perspective of having a working thesis uh, for the study of this, I think that's the direction we're going to take. It it's the, seems to be the one that makes the most sense. Nothing's perfect, but it makes the most sense. So let me give you a overview here of Ezekiel. Just basically an outline. We're not going to go into a lot of detail, but in chapters 1 through 3 of Ezekiel, you have the call of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is called to his prophecy, to his role as a prophet in chapters 1 through 3. Ezekiel was a prophet in one of the most difficult times in, in the history of Judah at the time of their captivity. He and Jeremiah just had a horrible duty. <laughs> Folks, I got to tell you, uh, Daniel too, but Daniel didn't happen until after he was already in the land, you know, already taken captive. But those three, boy, mm, God picked them for, for some tough duty as prophets. During, during one of the darkest times in Israel's history, many would call it the, the darkest time other than maybe the captivity, you know, in, in, in uh, Egypt, even though they weren't really even a nation at that point. They were just a family. So we see Ezekiel's call in chapters 1 through 3. Then in chapters 4 through 24, okay, a large section, this is, you know, the, the bulk of the book, we see prophecies about the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. God spends 21 chapters through Ezekiel prophesying the judgment on, on Judah and on Jerusalem and what is going to happen to them because of their sins and because of their idolatry. Okay, that's the bulk of the book. We've talked about this before. Um, sometimes we have a, a misconception of the role of, of ancient prophets. More often than not, that's what they were doing. They were being called by God to go to a king or go to to you know, some leader or go to a people and say, look, you guys are a mess, you're in sin, you need to make it right, or if you don't, God is going to punish you. That was the role the prophet actually carried more often than not. It, it was abnormal for them to have visions of future things. That wasn't the normal part of being a prophet. In, it, in, any, in some ways, that would have been a whole lot easier. The normal part is they had to go up to kings and basically say to a king, you're in sin. Make it right. I don't know about you, but I'd rather stand in a street corner and have people think I'm crazy than go up to a king and say, hey, buddy, you better get it right here. So God called these, you know, I, I don't know that we really have enough respect for who these, these people were and what they did. So that's what Ezekiel spent the bulk of this book doing. He's basically saying, you guys screwed up mightily and you better get it right because God's going to punish you. And then in chapters 25 through 32, like we had said before, there are prophecies against foreign nations. Basically, pretty much all the peoples around Israel who would have a, a, an effect on Israel most of the time in very negative ways, drawing them away from the worship of the true God uh, and into worshiping Baal and some of the other gods around them. And we see that all throughout, man, just read the book of Judges. You know, I mean, you want a depressing book, read Judges. Uh, and that's what you see, just idolatry almost constantly. 
So God talks about the judgment of those people in chapters 25 through, uh, through 32. Okay? And remember, he leaves out Babylon in that series of judgments. Then there are prophecies about restoration in the rest of the book. They begin in chapter 33, and they lead, it go up through chapter 37, and then you have a break that takes place in chapters 38 and 39, where Ezekiel has visions of this end times battle of this person called Gog, which, as we mentioned, it, probably the best way to see that is maybe that comes from, you know, that Sumerian loan word that means darkness. God is saying there's going to be a battle with darkness. Darkness will come against my people. But I'm going to draw it in. I'm going to draw it in like you catch a fish. When I get it here, I'm going to destroy Israel's enemies. Think about if you're going to do a series of visions about the restoration of Israel, wouldn't and if you're a people like Israel and anything that's ever happened to you in your history, you've been invaded or taken captive by somebody, haven't you? So what would the natural Israelite of the day, the, the, the Judahite of the day think when he starts hearing a prophet say, God's going to restore you all? Wouldn't his, his next thought say, well, yeah, but what's going to keep the next person from invading us like they always have? That's what chapters 38 and 39 are doing. That's God's answer. Remember, I've talked to you guys about this before, but the idea of, of God as Israel's warrior, the one who fights for them, is permeated throughout the entire Old Testament. We, we just miss it because we don't, we don't look for it. It's not, it's not cultural to us. It's not in our context. And so we skip over it all the time. But God says to, uh, about Israel all the time, you don't need to fight. I will fight for you. I am your warrior. And that's what God's saying here in 38 and 39. Not only is that invader going to come, I'm going to draw him in. And I'll draw him in and I'll destroy him and you'll be safe. You'll be safe. I'll take care of you. And then chapters 40 through 48 are the final vision of restoration of the re restored temple a heavenly temple that Ezekiel foresees, which would kind of uh, fit with what we know as the millennial kingdom. Israel at their covenant peace. Okay. <laughs> we have one minute. Um, just a few final considerations. And actually, the timing is good. Uh, for Ezekiel 38 and 39. One, um, you know, as I've just mentioned, is God's defense of restored Israel. Um, that is, I, I think, a, an awful lot, I, I can't say most, I have no idea. It, it, you know, I wish somebody went around and polled these, like, Old Testament scholars sometimes, so you kind of know where most of them were at. Um, but in, in what I've encountered uh, through reading about this, most seem to agree that this is a picture of God's 
defense of his people. Even the ones, by the way, who see Gog and Magog as purely symbolic, that's what they think it's a symbol for. Like I said, these are not like, like liberals who don't believe the Bible. They are saying they think it's a symbol of, of, that God is using to say to his people, hey, I'll defend you no matter who comes. Gog is kind of the idea of all the enemies, not just one. That's, you know, that's the view of the people who, who see it symbolically. And they're like, you know, hey, anybody who comes, I'm your God. And once I bring you to your covenant peace, no one, no matter who it is, will ever be able to get to you. In fact, I'll even bring them in. And when I bring them in, I'll wipe them out. You don't ever have to worry again. So even the ones who see Gog and Magog purely as symbolic, see it as symbolic of God's defense of his people. That is the point that most seem to agree on. Of all the things that nobody agrees on, that seems to be one thing that most of them agree on. The point of chapters 38 and 39 is that God will defend his people. And he will destroy his enemies and theirs. Now, chapters 38 and 39 uh, kind of lay out in a series of seven oracles. Actually, let me read what these seven are. I don't know them off the top of my head. Should have memorized them. Um, this will give you an idea of, of what we're going to look at in the next two weeks in these two chapters. Ezekiel 38 and 39 was composed as a series of seven oracles against Gog, the enemy of Israel. Uh, note the formula. This is what the sovereign Lord says beginning each oracle. These seven messages are, one, Yahweh will bring Gog and his allies against Israel. Two, Gog's evil thoughts and intentions will lead him to invade Israel. Three, Gog will advance against Israel from the north. Four, Gog will display his awesome, or God will display his awesome judgment against Gog. Five, it will take seven years to plunder and seven months to bury Gog's fallen army. It's going to be a nasty beatdown when, when Gog and his army get there. Six, the birds of the air uh, and, and beasts of the field will be invited to a great feast at which Gog is the meal, okay? Uh, he, he's not just a guest, he is the meal. That's bad news, don't go to a feast like that. <laughs> and seven, through his, this deliverance, God will conclude the salvation and restoration of Israel as foreseen in chapters 33 through 37. So those are the seven oracles that are given, and we will look at those in the course of the next two weeks. One final note, and I, I'm not going to take time to read all this, but, but the same approach that we have used to take, uh, 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 you know, with revelation on how we are going to do interpretation is the same approach we're going to take with this, all right? I'll read more of that to you next week. I'll take the time to kind of uh, go over, um, I, you know, I really, I love this commentary of Ezekiel. It's the best commentary I, I've read on Ezekiel personally. Um, and he does, I think, a great job of summing up uh, kind of what method of interpretation really is the right method to use in examining this. And, and it uh, really fits perfectly with kind of what we have decided to do with this class and what we've used with this class. And we'll talk about that more next week. Um, all right, let's close in a word of prayer. If you have any questions, we're kind of out of time, so save them to next week. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here with each other. 
uh, to study your word, uh, Father, to, to glorify you and just praise you for who you are and everything that you've done. Father, it is so comforting in the midst of all these crazy things that we read in these passages to know that you are in perfect control. None of this caught you by surprise. In fact, you are, you are the one drawing Gog in. And you are going to fight for your people. You'll fight for the Jewish people, and you will fight for your church, and you will, you will be there for us no matter what we ever face. And we can, we can take that to the bank. We can live knowing that and, and help us to, to really live with that in our minds, in our hearts all the time, that you are, are our warrior. You are, are the one who controls and protects us. So thank you for everything that you are, Lord. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Next week, read chapter 38. Okay? Read chapter 38.